You may have a seat. Man, I was back there feeling pretty nervous until I hear these guys out here singing praise and honor unto thee. Now I'm ready to go. Let's run through, run through a brick wall right about now. Um, so this morning we're going to continue in our sermon series out of the book of Acts. Um, it's called Gather and Go. And so we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus say, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And as we read through Acts, and we've talked about this in previous weeks, the church had kind of become comfortable in Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden this persecution comes and they're scattered. And that can be a bad thing, but the good part is when they get scattered, the gospel message goes out with them. And in chapter 13, we pick it up that the church is in Antioch. And as Andrew mentioned a couple weeks ago, Antioch, there's two Antiochs mentioned. At the beginning of chapter 13, they're in one, and then as we'll see at the end of chapter 13, they end up in a different Antioch. And so we're going to cover verses 13 through 43 today. There's a lot in all of that. But before we get into that, I want to back up for a moment and talk about this first church of Antioch. And as we all know, when I say the church, we're not talking about the building, right? The church is the people. We are the church. And we also know people are messy. I don't know if you knew that about yourself, but you're messy. I'm messy. And we can tend to overlook that when we read about people like Paul and some of these other characters in the, in the Bible, we tend to think, well, if Scripture mentions them, they must have their lives together. They must be doing pretty well. And that's not necessarily the case. And as we see in chapter 13, verse 1, it says that there were prophets and teachers, and then it lists them out, right? We have Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius from Siren, Mananine, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This was the leadership team at the church of Antioch. And so if we look at each of these guys individually, Simeon, called Niger. So Niger is a Latin term for black. So we know that this man was probably a man of color. Lucius of Cyrene, we now know that he is from Africa. But then we get into these last three, and it gets very interesting. So Mananine, and it says in parentheses, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. So why is that so important that they needed to add that in there? So Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, as he's listed other places in Scripture, not a great dude. So his dad would be Herod the Great. And if you remember anything about Herod the Great, if you remember the Christmas story, this is the man that sent people to Bethlehem to kill any boy that was two years or younger. Herod the Great also had his brother-in-law killed. He had his mother-in-law killed. This was the father figure for Herod Antipas. And if we look at Herod Antipas, we know that he married his stepbrother's ex-wife, which would make for a super awkward family reunion. We see in Matthew 14 that we have this scene where they're celebrating Herod's birthday and his stepdaughter comes in and she does this dance. And Herod is so filled with lust that he offers this girl, whatever in my kingdom that you want is yours. And this girl being the real peach that she is, 
responds by saying, give me John the Baptist's head on a platter. And we see that Herod does just that. And so there's this just generational depravity. If you get on Ancestry.com and think you're part of the Herod family, you're not going to be too happy with what you find. And we also know that Herod Antipas, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Pilate was trying to wash his hands of Jesus. So he sends him to Herod to deal with. And so Herod thinks that Jesus, this great magician, is coming over, like David Copperfield's coming over for supper. I may have just shown my age when I said David Copperfield, so David Blaine for you younger people. But anyway, when Jesus doesn't do what he wants him to do, he sends him back to Pilate for him to be crucified. And I mention all that about Herod because it, it mentions that that's, that's the culture this man he grew up in. These were the guys that, would, that influenced his life. But it also reveals to us how the power of the gospel can overcome our past. It doesn't define, our past doesn't define who we are. And then we get to Barnabas. Barnabas is introduced to us in Acts 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 36. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So we know this Barnabas is a, and a guy of encouragement. It probably felt really good to be around him. I used to call Clay Corver Barnabas all the time. He always has a positive spin on everything. And you also kind of know that you've arrived when the apostles rename you, right? They say, you're now Barnabas. Well, guys, my mama named me Joseph. Very good. We love your mama, but you're now Barnabas. And that's how we see him mentioned the rest of the way. But we also see that Barnabas is all in, right? He, see, he sells this field that he owns, and he lays all the money at the apostles' feet. He doesn't give 10%. He doesn't save a little bit for a rainy day. He doesn't try to manage it himself. He lays it all at the feet of the apostles. So this is a man of encouragement. This is a man who is generous. And Barnabas is also a man who's willing to operate underneath godly authority. And then that brings us to Saul. Saul is introduced to us in Acts 8, right after the stoning death of Stephen. And Acts 8 starts by saying, Paul approved of their killing him. And on that, great, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, of, all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. And now we get more of Saul. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And these people weren't just hauled off to prison. When they were taken away, their houses would have been looted. Everything they knew would have known in life would have been destroyed, torn apart. And so when we look at Barnabas and we look at Saul, these two men could not have been any further apart on the spectrum. And it's, and it's not in the scripture, but it's probably not a stretch to imagine that at this church in Jerusalem that Barnabas would have known some of these people that Saul persecuted, that drug off and imprisoned. 
So how in the world do these two guys get together? I mean, this is like a biblical times MTV real world. Let's just gather a bunch of people that there's no way they'll possibly get along and we'll stick them together and see what happens. But by the power of the gospel, the power to reconcile people together, the power to unify people together, it took their darkness and made them light. It took what was old and made it new. And as we will look at in a minute, it didn't always go perfectly. It wasn't a happily ever after. But they were so unified by the power of the gospel of Jesus. And we've went through, uh, Andrew taught on a few weeks ago, the, the conversion of Saul, the miraculous encounter he has with Jesus. And so we know, and it mentions several times that Saul is now calls him Paul, and he's full of the Holy Spirit. So we know that this man is now a believer. And somehow, somehow God uses this cast of characters as his vessel to spread the gospel. It says that they worshiped together, that they prayed together, that they fasted together, and that the Holy Spirit spoke to them. That is proof that our past do not define us. The gospel is bigger than anything that we can do. So I know I've thought this, and if there's anybody in this room that feels this way, that there's something in your past that is so bad, or you've said something that was so wrong or done something that is unforgivable. Stories like this prove that the gospel is bigger, that God's grace is bigger, that we may not even be good enough at sinning, to pull ourselves away from God's grace. Because it's not about how good we are. It's about how good he is. So this group of guys is this, is this leadership team that we find at the church at Antioch. And it says they laid hands on Barnabas and Saul. And they sent them out. So just like the title of this series, they were gathered and now that they're going... And last week, Andrew talked about how Barnabas and Saul went to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was originally from. So he knew the area. He knew the people. And as we look at chapter 13 today, they're headed to a place that Paul would have been more familiar with. And again, a couple things to note that begin to shift in chapter 13. Saul, he was mentioned as Saul, sometimes called Paul up to this point. But from 13 on, he is now Paul for the rest of Scripture. And when their journey started, they were always listed as Barnabas and Saul. But now in chapter 13, we see that flipped. Paul has now take, taken this leadership role. So it's always Paul and Barnabas, or as we see here, Paul and his companions. And so we've got 30 verses to cover, so I'll hop into that now. So in chapter 13, verse 13, we pick it up. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. So I'm going to pause already, leave 29 more verses. Because we can read right through this and it seems fairly innocent, right? John left them. And there's several theories that I found as to why John left. One of them was that he was sick. 
and he needed to return home. One of the theories is he was homesick and he wanted to return home. Another was he just wasn't prepared for the grind of this missionary journey that they were on. He just couldn't go anymore. And then the last one was that he had a little bit of a riff with this new leadership. Barnabas was his cousin. And now Paul has taken the leadership role and Barnabas has moved down a notch. And so maybe that was the problem and why he wanted to leave. But whatever the case, he leaves and according to what we read here, it doesn't seem like much of a big deal. But if we were to jump ahead to Acts 15 verses 36 through 41, we discover that this is a real issue for Paul. It says, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had continued with them in the work and not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. So Barnabas takes Mark, Paul takes Silas. And so even these people who come from vastly different backgrounds are reconciled and unified by the power of the gospel of Jesus. They still have their differences. Paul took it very personally that John had left. I mean, I I get it that nothing like this ever happens in the church today, but it happened here. But the important part that I want to point out is even in their differences, they didn't stop. They continued to share the gospel. And so we move on in verse 14 and 15, and we see more of that playing out. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On, on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After reading from the law and prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So we see this typical synagogue service playing out. So it would probably start with what's called the Shema, which is the, a line from Deuteronomy verse 4-6 where it says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the leader of the synagogue would pray for everybody. And then they would read from the law, and then they would read from the prophets, and then they would, either the leader of the synagogue or a visiting rabbi would come up and they would give commentary on what was read. And we see here that Paul is invited to do just that, Paul and Barnabas. But what's really cool about what happens next is we, as we've read through Acts, we've seen that Paul has been teaching people. But what we find here in Acts 13 is the first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. And so he starts in, uh, in verse 16 through 23. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites, you and Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So all you Jewish people and even you God-fearing Gentiles in the back, listen up, I've got something to say. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. 
After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David the king. And God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And from this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. So it takes Paul seven verses to cover the entire history of Israel. It takes him seven verses to get to Jesus. But what he says in those seven verses, I mean, he does mention that God endured their conduct in the wilderness for 40 years, but Paul doesn't dwell on all the ways that the people had messed up, all the ways that the people had turned from God or how they'd worshiped idols or other gods. Paul points out, God has been faithful. God has been faithful this whole time. He's showing them that God has promised many, many things to the people of Israel, and he has always been faithful. And he's been promising this coming Messiah. And listen up. He's here, right? This is what God has been promising, and he is now being faithful. And then he goes on to explain how the people still didn't get it, how they still didn't see Jesus for who he was, but God remained faithful. In verses 24 through 31, before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And here he goes again, calling him out, fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and the rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of prophets that you read every Sabbath. He's saying, guys, you know this, you've studied this, you read it every week, and you're still not getting it. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And they are now his witnesses to our people. And notice what he says there in verse 31. He's like, these, these people that had traveled with him, they were the witnesses. I didn't see him. They saw him. They were the witnesses. But then it flips in verse 32. They saw him, but we're here to tell you about it. It's our job now to tell you about it. We tell you the good news, verses 32 through 35. We tell you the good news, what God has promised to our ancestors to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, Psalm, verse, or psalm 2, verse 7, if you're taking notes, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing that was promised to David. 
And so it is also stated elsewhere, Psalm 16, if you're taking notes, you will not let your Holy One see decay. So he's saying, guys, listen, these Old Testament scriptures that you've been studying your entire life, they all point to Jesus. They all point to Jesus. And three times he tells them, and God raised him from the dead. And Paul's not done there. He keeps pounding home this point. Verses 36 and 37. Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead, fourth time, did not see decay. And the good news is he's still not seen decay. He is alive and well at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf right now. So then he goes on, and he starts to drop bombshells on him. 38 and 39. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And then here comes the first bomb. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Boom. He just lays it on them. The law of Moses that they had tried so hard their entire lives to live up to, it wasn't enough. It didn't cut it. But because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, if you believe, you will be justified before God the Father. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be made white as snow. This statement would have blown their minds. Here's another way of what he's saying. The law of Moses will reveal that you are a sinner. But it can do nothing about it. Jesus is the only way to be freed from your sin. Another way to look at it. It's like looking in a mirror. Right? If I feel 18, 35, if I feel 35 and I look in a mirror, it's going to reveal to me that I'm not. The mirror's only doing its job, right? The mirror has no power to transform anything about me. It's just revealing that I'm not 18. Jesus has power to change our lives. And Paul even admits this later in the book of Romans where he says, I would have not even known sin if it weren't for the law. So he's saying, guys, I'm not saying the law is bad. I'm just saying it can't do anything for you. Jesus is what justifies you before the Lord. Only he can take your sin. Only he can restore your right standing. And he goes on to quote even more scripture in verses 40 and 41. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. And then we see that very thing start to happen in the next two verses. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. If they would have told them years ago that these two guys will show up and they'll preach this 
forgiveness message of some guy named Jesus, they wouldn't have believed it. And yet Paul shows up and he shares this with them and they want more. Come back next week. Tell us more about this. They follow him. And the cool part is they've already accepted it, right? Because Paul says continue in God's grace. He doesn't say, I hope you find it. I hope you can accept it. They've already accepted it. And he's like, yes, continue in that. The gospel, the, the power of the gospel of Jesus has a way to reconcile and unify people together that nothing else can do. So last Tuesday, when I came to work, I was very frustrated. In some ways, feeling very dejected. So on Monday night, I had probably made the mistake of watching the news, and then later that evening, I'd watched this political show that I watch fairly frequently to try to keep track of what's going on in our world. And as I watched that show, they were interviewing this guy that was sharing his thoughts on the pandemic, the global crisis all over the place. Seems like there's a new one every day. He was talking about the state of our democracy. And at some point in that, he made this comment, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And in the context of which he said it, in the, in the way that he said it, it just landed on me like a ton of bricks. It just felt awful. So much so that on Tuesday morning when I woke up to come to work, it was still weighing heavy on me. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It doesn't matter. So I get to work, and I sit down and I read Acts 13. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And at some point in reading Acts 13, the Lord kind of flipped that in my mind. And I began to realize, you know what? Our world is constantly changing. And if you make the mistake I did and watch the news and these political shows, it's never changing for the better. Although there's plenty of good things happening. But the power of the gospel message never changes. He is the same today as he was yesterday and he will be for eternity. The gospel doesn't change. Doesn't change. And that brought comfort to me. Because if I'm being honest, I've seen this play out in my life. Because like Saul or Barnabas or some of these other guys, if you were to look at my story, I've got no resume to stand up here and share the gospel with you. But somehow, by the grace of God, that's, that's happened. For I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. I even had someone tell me. I think I've shared this before, but we were at a small group at a friend's house, and we were having a conversation about something completely different. And out of the blue, my wife interrupted everybody and said, you're going to be a pastor. We need to pray for you. I've always questioned your sanity, but I think it's now gone. 
Even when people tell us, we don't always believe it. But then it started to dawn on me, we had a a newcomer's lunch last week after church. And we kind of shared the history of Celebrate Church. And as I reflected on that this week, I've seen how God has remained so faithful through this ministry for so many years. I mean, look at the similarities. We're gathered here together, a bunch of messy people, by the power of Jesus. I mean, if we went around this room and everybody shared their testimony, not just the testimony that you would put on Facebook, but I mean the good and the bad and the ugly parts of your story, there's really no reason that many of us would ever be together outside the power of Jesus. The reconciliation and unifying power of the gospel. And just like this church in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, we don't always see eye to eye. But that never gives us permission to stop sharing the gospel. And even when things aren't going well, I remember plenty of times where we thought, we're in big trouble here. I'll never forget a night at a meeting and I looked at Paula Van Ruckel across the table and without saying a word we knew what the other was thinking like I don't know how we survived this this is the end but somehow through God's favor and through God's blessing through reconciliation of relationships by the power of the gospel here we are continuing to share That Jesus, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for the forgiveness of our sins. He took what we deserve so we can receive what he deserves. We continue to teach that he was raised from the dead. That he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And when we believe that, when we accept that, that we never die, that we have eternal life. And like Paul and Barnabas that we read about in these last verses, we continue to have new people coming. We continue to have people wanting more. So friends, we must continue to share the gospel. Even when it's not easy, even when we feel persecuted, even when we don't feel like it. Paul and Barnabas had plenty of reasons not to share it. But imagine what would happen if they'd have stopped. Would we be here right now? There is a reason that this sermon series is called Gathered to Go. It's not called Gather. It's called gather and go. Because for those of us who have received Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and we have received the good news, friends, that is not ours to keep. That's not ours to hoard. That's ours to share. 
So when we gather, which is good, but more importantly, it's when we go. It's who we share it with. Because when we do that, when we gather, when we go, when we share, God will continue to do something in in our days that we would never believe even if someone told us. We've been praying for revival for a long time in this city and in this region. And I think this is the catalyst to that. People know more about Jesus. God will continue to do something in our days that we wouldn't believe, that we couldn't believe, even if someone told us. Let's pray. So, Father, we give you thanks for this day. Give you thank you, uh, thanks for your word. We give you praise for the ways that you've used people throughout history. People like Barnabas and Saul. People that were persecuted. There's still people being persecuted for your name. Yet they remain faithful. They remain strong. They remain courageous by the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. So Father, we want to be those people for you. We want revival in this city and in this region. But we also admit that we are messy people and that we need more of you. So Father, as we continue to worship, would you begin to move in our hearts? I pray that you would just drop a name on everyone's heart of who they can share the gospel with this week. Whether it's a friend, a family member, a coworker, a stranger. That they would have the courage to share that Jesus died for the sake of their sin. And that believing in him, they will be set free. They will be justified before God the Father. Continue to work in us. Mold us like clay in your hands. Give us that name, that image of who you want us to share it with. As we worship you because you are worthy. You're worthy of all our praise, all our worship for your love and your faithfulness. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.